Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Living with XXY podcast series. I'm your host, Ryan Briganti. So today is a very special podcast. It's something completely different that all of you have never had the opportunity to listen to. And I'm really excited to share this interview. So recently, we had the opportunity just this last week, we had the opportunity to talk to a class at NYU or also New York University. This class is being taught by a psychologist and it's um, the class name is called Sexual Identities Across the Lifespan. And the teacher came, or the teacher sent me an email a couple of weeks ago and really wanted to get me to talk about just my perspective living with Klinefelter syndrome. And he has this completely different method of teaching where instead of teaching by the book of what the book says, what the medical says about Klinefelter syndrome, he wanted a real life person to just teach the class about the real life experience. And he said that he's been using my YouTube videos in his class for a couple of years. And he finally got the okay to have me in and the opportunity for this class to have a guest speaker. And in this audio recording that you're about to listen to, this is actually a Zoom call that was recorded. If you wanted to watch the Zoom call, you can go over to the YouTube channel and the entire interview is um, on there. So we aren't, unfortunately, we're unable to have the voices of the students in the class. So when you're listening to this, the questions that the students asked us are actually my voice recorded. I, re, I wrote down the, the questions and then I recorded them. So when you're listening, you, you might hear some of that. You, may, you might hear the teacher and then you might hear me asking the question. So just don't get confused with that. So this is an amazing opportunity to just shed some light from living with it and kind of how I started and, and my life in general. There's a lot of things on here that I'm sure a lot of you have never heard. So let's get to it. Enjoy this amazing and incredible podcast and this opportunity to speak at NYU. And we've got some incredible speaking arrangements set up in the next couple of weeks for at a couple other colleges. So we're really looking forward to just continuing to spread awareness support um, our mission as a nonprofit and uh, the sky's the limit here. Uh, we, we definitely appreciate all of the donations and everything that everyone's been giving us this season of October and November, December are some of the biggest months that our nonprofit is able to raise funds. So when you're thinking about, you know, donations and, and where that money could go, um, you know, we, we would, we would love for you to think about us we would love for you to do Facebook birthdays in support of our organization and any donations that you possibly could um, give us this year. We would definitely appreciate the support to continue to do this podcast, the documentary series, all the content that we produce. Um, everything costs um, quite a lot of money. And um, yeah, we just, we just, this is the first time that um, I've really asked for money and, and we need it now. So Thank you all for your support and uh, enjoy this podcast. Welcome to our class. This is um, Sexual Identities Across the Lifespan, and you are my old student. Do you guys want to say hi? Hello. We're, we're very excited to have you. Um, so if you don't mind, maybe um, you guys want to introduce yourself. I, Ryan, I wanted you to introduce your guests as well, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. So if you don't mind doing it, and then we'll begin. Yeah, I'm, I'm Ryan Briganti. I'm 35 years old. Um, I was born with Kleinfelder syndrome. 
And um, yeah, we'll, we'll get more into that as time goes, goes on. Uh, I live in San Diego, California right now. Um, that's where I was born and Chelsea. Hi, um, I'm Chelsea Castangue. I am the mom of a three-year-old son who has Klinefelter syndrome. Um, and he, I was diagnosed, or he was diagnosed uh, when I was about 20 weeks pregnant. And I am the writing director for Living With XXY. So I get to work with Ryan really closely on a lot of really cool projects. And I currently live in Howland, Maine, which is the middle of nowhere. Once again, welcome. I wanted you to start sort of with the conversation that we had on Zoom privately. Maybe um, why is it important to even have you guys here? Why are, is it important for the students in my classroom to know and give you the opportunity to speak up and introduce yourself in your own way with your own story and your own experiences? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give a little rundown of, about uh, my life up until the point of starting the nonprofit. Um, so I'm 35 years old. I was born in 1985. Um, my mom had me when she was 42 years old. So back then, when it comes to health, um, over 40 was considered high risk. And she, they did an amnio on her, which um, got flagged as I had Kleinfelder syndrome. Um, so basically, I just, uh, my parents told me at nine years old that I had Kleinfelder syndrome, that this is, this was me. And at nine, I knew I was different than a lot of my peers. And it's something that my parents, they didn't just drop the bomb on me about this is it. Um, you know, it was something that they just um, gave me, like they told me about it and I accepted it at nine. And it's something that I just carried on with me as I lived my life. And a lot of people that don't know me when I tell them about, you know, when they find out about me through living with XXY, I tell them that, um, you know, I had basically what I did is with Kleinfelder syndrome, I, I did my testosterone shots that I started at 13. So throughout my life, I did my testosterone shots. I did my blood work. I went to my doctor and then I just lived my life. And my life um, consisted of lots of struggles, but lots of triumphs over those struggles. And for me, everything in my life, I've had to work three times or four times harder than everyone else. But with acceptance of my life and with acceptance of who I am as, a, as this is me and this is, this is what I've been given in my life, I've accepted those struggles, but I've also accepted those amazing things like being creative. Um, you know, I was a chef for 10 years in fine dining restaurants all across the United States. I was a photographer for a long time. So I have all these amazing, great qualities, but when you have so many struggles, when you, when you, and when you read about Kleinfelder syndrome online, you see nothing but, but struggles. And so at, at nine, you know, I was bullied tremendously throughout, throughout my life in school. And a lot of people give me sympathy when I tell them I was bullied and I don't, Bully, me being bullied was something, was what made me who I am today, what made me resilient against haters and people out there telling me you're never going to be successful or whatever it is. And so that bullying and those struggles that I've experienced in my life have just built me up throughout life. And now that I'm 35, I definitely don't feel 35, but it's given me that confidence within myself to put my life on YouTube in 2017 to raise awareness about Kleinfelder syndrome, which before for me, before I, I would think I was about 31 years old when I started that YouTube channel before I was just living my life and 
whatever my challenges were, whatever was presented in front of me, uh, my peers, acceptance, be yourself, that, that those situations, um, it was just me being me and I didn't know anything else. And so I, in 2017, I actually went to a conference and it was my first time meeting anyone else that had an, another um, X chromosome or other variations. And I, I saw a couple guys that I really got along with and met and we were the same personality types. And I saw a lot of guys, you know, using their diagnosis to be a victim. And they were, you, they were being a victim, whether they were personally doing it to themselves or they were told by doctors throughout their whole life that they're never going to be able to graduate from high school. They're never going to hold a job. They won't ever be able to get married or have kids. All these negative things that they were told from other people. Um, and after that, it was the first time in my entire life that I Googled Kleinfelder syndrome. Before, when I was living with it, I was just doing my daily grind, you know, working on whatever struggles I had, accepting, hey, this is me. These are my challenges versus I'm not going to compare myself to other people. Um, and bullying really made me like resilient to always listen to my inner self and not let other people constantly tell me who I am or what my identity is or, or all of these things. Um, so when I Googled it for the first time, it, it just, I went into like a research spiral. I researched everything. I read so many research papers and it's so hard to read those in general, but I was so, I was just baffled by the amount of negative information that was online about Kleinfelder syndrome. When I've been working my ass off my entire life to, to get where I was and, and despite all the struggles, it, there was nothing on, online that said all these amazing characteristics and traits about, you know, being photographic, having a photographic memory, um, being very hands-on, like kinetic learner. So if you show me how to do something, then I'm going to remember it and, and do, and that's the way I learn, right? I was a chef. I went to the CIA, which is up in Hyde Park, New York, which maybe some of you are um, familiar with. So that's where I went to culinary school. So when I Googled it, I just was like, all these things are not me. Like, how, how is this? You know, I'm like, there's got to be other guys like me out there. So my good friend was just like, you know, we researched and we, we, we looked online. We looked on YouTube. There were no real videos. And my buddy was like, dude, you got to get on YouTube. And as a photographer, you're always behind the camera. And it's really hard to put yourself in front of the camera and especially on YouTube with all the possible criticism and all that stuff. And, and the bullying was what, was what taught me to like, don't read the comments and don't take anything personal. And there's a lot of ignorant people out there that are going to judge you based on like you living your life. And who's to say that they know your life best, you know, and it, like, I know myself best. And I'm not going to let anyone else tell me I can't do something or I'm not going to be successful. So I jumped on YouTube in 2017, I made a video, but it took me 42, 43 tries to get that video to where I wanted it to be. So it, I was just resilient. I just kept doing it. And I was like, I, you know, my buddy was like, you have to do this. You're doing it. He, he supported me. My family supported me and I jumped on YouTube. And from there, things kind of just took off this community that has been in the, sh in the shadows their whole lives. You know, if you were to look at me right now, standing here, 
and I was walking in, in, around in the street or walking around at your school, you wouldn't know that I had an extra chromosome. You wouldn't know that I was infertile, that my body didn't make testosterone, that I struggled with learning disabilities as a kid all throughout my life, and that, that I've had to adapt and make workarounds in my entire life to combat my, my struggles. For instance, like I have um, reading is really hard for me. So I figured out on the Mac, if you go to accessibilities, you can actually highlight text and do a, a bind key. So for me, I bound S. So I highlight something and then I just do command S and it speaks it to me in this like computer voice, but it works. So I found workarounds my entire life. So I just decided like, there's a lot of positive to this syndrome. There's a lot of positive that's not out there. There's gotta be other men. It's one in 500 people. So there's gotta be other men all around the world that have this that are just like me living their life. So I just continued to do YouTube, built a, um, learned how to build a website on WordPress and built a .com website. And people just started pouring in from all over, Facebook groups and all these things. People just started messaging me, hey, I have that, I have this, I have that. So it just kind of opened up a community that was in the shadows that, you know, when you read about it online, or if you were to go onto your phone right now and you were to Google Kleinfelder syndrome, you would get an image that Google has drawn of what it looks like to have Kleinfelder syndrome. And our community is a spectrum. So there are people that are like heavily impacted. And then there are people that are very like impacted by just a few things. And that photo does not give justice to that spectrum of individuals who has this syndrome. And so it, it has a man standing on his, on, with his arms on his hips, which is a very feminine position because we have an extra chromosome, an extra X chromosome, which a lot of people say, oh, you have an extra female chromosome, so you're more feminine. Well, that's not necessarily true. Um, some guys might present that way, but most of our community doesn't. And so, you know, you have a guy with glasses. Glasses has a stigma as well. Um, he's in his bedroom, which, and he's got his shirt off. So all the other conditions that you could Google none of them have their shirt off. Now, I know why it has its shirt off because it says glycomastia, which we're about 30 to 35% of our community is, um, will have man boobs at some point. And a lot of our weight goes, you can't see my black shirt right now, but a lot of our weight goes to our lower abdomen where that's the hardest place to lose it once you, once you get weight there. A lot of us might have um, more, wider hips and narrower shoulders and we're pretty tall, but as we said, it's a spectrum. So it's, it's kind of, you know, that one image doesn't do justice of this community. And, and it, it kind of made me angry because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm like, there's so many people out there that have this and they're not opening up about it because it's easier for them to hide behind it because we are hiding in plain sight. You know, no one can tell physically or walking around you know in society that we have that we have one of the most common chromosome conditions in men no one can tell so it's easier to hide behind it than it is to you know put yourself out there and with all the stigma with all the images on google and the the horrible research articles that say that they did in jail that they say we're more likely to end up in prison that your son's going to be mentally retarded and chelsea can speak on a lot of this stuff as a mother so it's been four years of me from 2017 till now, 2021, 
where I left my career as a chef, as a highly successful action sports photographer. Um, I've done a, 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 a range of other jobs, but those are my two main careers. I left both those careers behind and I've been volunteering my time. Um, I've set myself up financially where I can volunteer. And so four years of no paycheck, no money coming towards me. It's been through passion, through love, through dedication, extremely hard work, which I'm used to, and not letting all these doctors and everyone else within the community, without the, with outside the community, other people try to label me and tell me like who I am, right? So that's kind of been, the, it's, been a, it's been a pretty crazy road. Um, it's awesome to be here speaking in front of all of you. This is just another testament to our success and how we're making a huge difference um, for these unheard voices that our, our platform, Living With XXY, we, we've kind of, what I've decided and what I wanted to do is give all these people a voice. You know, all these people are afraid to come out. They're afraid of judgment, the stigma, what, the fear, male infertility. A lot of men don't want to talk up, speak up about being infertile. And so I've given, I, with this platform, I've given people a voice. We're making a documentary series. We're, we have a podcast. So I, I do the podcast um, from this room. This is a bedroom in my house where I run the nonprofit. So giving people a podcast, Chelsea is the writing director. So we have lots of different ways for people to kind of put themselves out there, put photos of themselves and kids and change this, the five decades of stigmas or stigma that have been pushed on our community by the outside. And that's, I've kind of been that voice. And so all of a sudden, all these people have now kind of backed me in that voice. And, and Chelsea, um, I'd like for you to kind of just, I'd say one of the biggest things about today is about acceptance, self-acceptance, is that we all are individuals. We all are individually unique. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. And some of you might have to study. Some of you don't have to study. Um, and you have your you have your personality of like who you are, how you fit in socially. If you don't fit in socially, so what? Like it's it's all about just putting that, you know, through everything that's going on in the world today as well, all the stresses, COVID, all these other things. Um, every person is unique and you have to value yourself and you can't let other people tell you who you are. That's basically a little bit about today. So Chelsea, could you kind of? So before yeah. we go to Chelsea, thank yeah. you so much for this like huge introduction, a very important one. A long time ago when I was still in training, I worked with a woman who um, is a Holocaust survivor. She was in her 90s and her story is quite traumatic and tragic in a lot of different ways. But I was very brand new in clinical psychology and I, I was, this was my training, my practicum. And so I told her, when we, in our conversation, what a story. And she said to me, it's not a story, it's my life. And I learned a huge lesson very early on as a clinical psychologist to allow people to tell their own sort of presentation. It's not up for me to sort of decide what, what that is. And I think we both agree on it. And I see Chelsea is nodding there as well. So that's why I wanted you guys to come here and I wanted you to have an opportunity to present it from your perspective because that doesn't happen often. As you said, it is defined on Google. It's defined in medicine. It's defined in psychology as well. We have so many different things that we put labels on and we do it without the responsibility what that comes with. 
And I think people should have their own voice to be able to speak up for themselves, explain it and present it. And that's what we're doing today. So I'm very, very grateful. And thank you for putting yourself on YouTube because that's how I found you. And a lot of the students were very excited to see you here today and both of you. So thank you for being here and we can go um, to Chelsea. Sorry for that. I just wanted to squeeze in. No, no thank, thank you for being open to not teaching by the book and not, you know, that's where the book is teaching about the misinformation about our syndrome. And it's really, um, it's really amazing to, to have that opportunity with you and, and the fact that you teach your kid, your students through this mindset. And that, that's, that's truly incredible. Thank you. Um, it's an opportunity for all of us to learn to know better, to, to learn acceptance, as you were saying. Uh -huh. Chelsea? Hi. Um, okay. So I to go to the like this topic of acceptance, um, I found out that Noah was most likely going to have Kleinfelter syndrome when I was about 20 weeks pregnant. Um, because I woke up one day and I just had this feeling that like something wasn't right with my pregnancy. And so I went and did um the non-invasive prenatal testing and the results came back. Um, and I was really fortunate because my OB called and he explained what was going on and he said, Don't Google. Whatever you do, do not go online. Don't look this up. We're going to set you up with a genetics counselor. And so we did that. And the genetics counselor was wonderful. Um, she explained in great detail, like what it was going to look like to have Noah and that he was overall going to be healthy and that he was going to be smart and probably very beautiful. All of these things he is. And um, that was going to be okay. And what I've learned since is that a lot of women don't have that same experience. Often they are recommended um, by their OBs to terminate their pregnancies. Um, they are told this outdated information that Ryan shared with you already. And so as a result, going through my pregnancy, I felt really isolated and really like not so much shame, but worry about what was going to happen once Noah was born because I just didn't know. And also because it was a spectrum disorder, we didn't know what he would be like when he came out. Um, and so he was born and he was a huge baby when he was born and he was gorgeous and wonderful and very healthy. Um, and so after about a year, we hadn't really told anybody. Um, we told a family member who had a really negative reaction to learning the news. Um, he was holding Noah and he looked down at him and he said, I just can't believe there's something wrong with you. Um, and I have to really stress that people with Kleinfelter syndrome don't feel there's anything wrong with them because there isn't. They just have an extra X chromosome. Um, it's just an extra part of who they are. Um, and so at the time being a new mom and being really sleep deprived and just kind of freaked out by this situation, it made me kind of like go back into this place of fear and worry of like, what's going to happen? Is Noah going to grow up and be judged? Is he going to be rejected? Um, is society going to like think of him differently? And so I think, gosh, it was probably about two years into it. I told a few people, some people responded okay, some people didn't. I got a lot of like, oh God, I'm so sorry. I Googled it though, and he's probably gonna be okay. And that was really difficult to deal with because then I would have to explain to them all this information that I had also learned. Um, I have a master's in higher education. So I had spent a lot of time you know, researching and trying to understand what these studies were saying um, and connecting with different researchers across the country, some good experiences, some not so great. And finally, I think it was like on, I think it was Instagram is how I found Ryan. Actually, I was, you know, searching and I messaged him and I told him a little bit about our experience. And I told him at the time that we were not telling anybody about Noah's diagnosis. And um, so he's like, well, come, you know, come write for us and we'll kind of get you started that way. And I started telling our story 
um, writing under a pseudonym and not telling anyone that we are working for the foundation. And as time went on and Ryan and I started talking more, I realized that there's this whole community of people who should not have to hide and who should not have to feel ashamed of something that's not their fault. Um, there's nothing that anybody does that causes Klinefelter syndrome. It's, you know, just a genetic luck of the draw. Um, and so we started just telling more people about Noah, and um, I felt a lot more confident to explain it and to step in and correct the misconceptions and to very strongly and firmly correct those misconceptions. Um, and so overall, it's going great. Like we have connected with the community in a wonderful way. We've met other moms and dads who have kids with Kleinfelter syndrome. Um, and now Noah has this huge community of really amazing mentors that he can look up to. So self-acceptance is a huge portion of how we're raising Noah. Um, we talk about Kleinfelter syndrome in our home really regularly in a way that makes it not a stigma, just something that's normal and something that he accepts. Um, Noah was born uh, with low muscle tone, so he does see a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. And for us, it's really important that that's just part of how Noah lives his life. We want him to have the care that he needs and to understand that he'll need some maintenance care throughout his life. Like he's going to need blood work like Ryan has. He'll need testosterone treatments. And I don't want him to be scared of that. I want him just to accept it the same way that somebody might if they had diabetes or asthma or something that requires some regular ongoing maintenance with a healthcare provider. Um, and so far it's going great. He is just like the joy of my life. I love him so much and I can't imagine him any other way. He's smart and beautiful and kind and he has the same like the photographic memory that Ryan was talking about he remembers everything like the minute he sees it or he hears it it's locked in there forever which sometimes works as a disadvantage to us but like he'll remember something that we said like six months ago that we were going to do and then or a toy that like got thrown out and all these things but um he's just such a wonderful human being and I just love him so much um, but yeah, so like the acceptance piece is huge and we struggle still with people kind of telling us like what he's going to be like or who he'll be and we have to correct that. Um, but I'm really glad to do that and I'm really glad to share our family and to share our story and you know because otherwise we're just a pretty normal family doing normal family things in the middle of nowhere Maine. So um, yeah, anything else you want me to add Ryan? I think I think when it comes to acceptance, I think that there, there's this transfer of acceptance. So mothers get di more and more families are being diagnosed in utero now due to non-invasive non-invasive prenatal testing or the NIP test. It's like a it's a lot of women are doing it over 35, and just more and more women are doing it in general. And they're finding out in utero that their son has this, and the information hasn't changed very much on the medical side. So they're being told, like Chelsea said, all these awful things, and I've I've have experienced all of them and when when you're told something about your child before they're born um, termination is one of the main go-tos for a lot of these families unfortunately um, and but a lot of the families when they find our youtube our instagram our website they're like letting us know like wow you guys really just brought up like the human aspect of this syndrome like and we were just told all these things that our child's going to be a monster and so I think one of the things is, is acceptance. So the family has to accept that their child is born with Klinefelter syndrome. Once they accept that, like Chelsea, then they can open up to all their friends and family and educate them, but also get support because a lot of these families, when they have their son, they go into hiding and they, they feel really alone and isolated with this. 
So then once they accept that, it might take some time. And once they accept that, then they have to transfer that acceptance to their child. So at a certain point, um, Chelsea, you've told Noah at three. So, and you're obviously not telling him everything, but you're telling him age appropriate stuff. So then that acceptance is being transferred to the child. And that child is going to grow up knowing that they're different, but knowing that nothing's wrong with them, that they're, that this is who they are. And acceptance within our community is a huge thing because a lot of men find out later on in life trying to have kids because we're infertile. So they will get, they'll, they'll be trying for kids for years or for a short period of time, they'll get this diagnosis and the men are told like, oh yeah, you're never going to be able to be a father. That's it. Like that. They're not really given any information. And a lot of these men have like a really hard time with it. Like a day before their diagnosis, they were happy and living their life after diagnosis. They're a completely different person. And that self-acceptance has to also come when they're diagnosed with this. Cause if they can accept like, well, this might take me a little bit of time to accept it, but if I can accept it, this is who I am. There's nothing wrong with me. I was living a great life before. I can continue to live a great life. I can do donor sperm or other uh, micro-T's or adoption of other methods of becoming a father. Um, you know, that, that doesn't stop me from, from having kids. And so that acceptance piece is throughout our whole community. And once people come to that acceptance of, hey, this is me, this is who I am, they open up. And they are like, I want to give back. I want to help people. I want to share my story. And so we have pod, like I said earlier, we have podcasts and document, we have documentary series, YouTube and written stories. So people can have a lot of avenues to share their voice and to give back. And, and that's, what's so important about what we're doing. How did you get to the, the acceptance piece? Like, how did you grow it? How did you find it? Like, how did it come about? Like what helped on the way? I think, okay, so when I was told at nine, it was something that like my parents, like Chelsea said, I, they didn't make it a big deal. They were like, you have struggles, you, you struggle with reading, writing, learning, school in general. I was also really tall. So I was, I stood out. Kids called me twang because I had a gap in between my teeth. So all these, I was bullied tremendously. And then I, in eighth grade, I got to the point where my parents calling the school, the teacher, like no one was helping with the bullying. So I just got this urge to stand up for myself. So in eighth grade, I stood up for myself and it made an impact in me that I never, I never thought I had. And I carried that with me throughout life to not let all these people constantly tell me who I am or bully me. All right. I, I accepted I, I think that right there in eighth grade really taught me who I was and what I was capable of doing. And then I, I kind of about in two, when I was 25 years old, I moved to Vail, Colorado to work as a chef at this restaurant called Sweet Basil, which is a fine dining restaurant in, in the mountains in one of the uh, most pre prestigious um, ski towns in America. And it, I, I was working and doing all that. And then I became a photographer during that time. And I ended up working in the snowboard industry. And I felt like I was totally different. I felt like I didn't fit in with all these professional snowboarders. I was this quirky, awkward, socially awkward dude, but I was around these guys because I had the talent to take photos of them. And I felt like I had to be someone else. And at that time I started, I moved to Utah 
and I started lying and I started doing all these things to make myself feel like I needed to be this cool, awesome person. And I bet you most of those people saw right through me and knew that I wasn't the person that I said I was, I was, and I knew I wasn't who I was, but I felt like I had to be this person because I, I kind of, I dropped back on that accepting myself because I was peer pressure and all these other people. And then over time that just destroyed me, my, my relationships, my professional relationships, my career, just lots of other things kind of failed, started kind of going down. And I, I came to the self-realization on my 30th birthday, I took a doors off helicopter ride in Kauai and I'm deathly afraid of heights, but I pushed myself because a friend who's a chef on a yacht at the time was like, this is one of the top five things I've ever done. And on my 30th birthday, it, it transformed me. I was taking photos of, of everything. And then something clicked inside of me and told me focus on yourself, enjoy this ride instead of trying to capture it. And I turned around and put all that focus on myself. When I landed, I told myself at 30, that moving forward, I'm going to be my ultimate self. I'm going to find out who Ryan is. And from that aspect, I've been just pushing myself and then building this community. They've all accepted me for who I am. And so it just, it's one of those things that just, I came to that realization of I'm, I'm not being my authentic self and I need to be and not let other people tell me. All right. So since we can't have the audio of the class, in this video for all of you, my voice is going to be asking the questions that the class asked me. And this question that was asked me was, did I feel isolated growing up? Did you feel if you had more community, you would have felt better? No. So you're, you're, you're asking about if I had more community growing up, would I have not felt so isolated? I didn't feel isolated. I felt, um, I felt like I wasn't bullied because I had Kleinfelder syndrome. I was, I was bullied because I was tall. I mean, maybe I was bullied because of some of the attributes of Kleinfelder syndrome, but I never, I never, um, well, my, okay. My parents, I'm 35, my dad's 85 and my mom's 77. So I grew up with much older parents and I never grew up. My grandfather came over from Italy and worked really hard. Um, and I, I came from this family where you're never a victim. You never, no matter what it is, you, if you put your, your head down and you work harder than everybody else, if you spend your weekends working while everyone's partying, you're, you're going to rise to the top at some point in your life. For me, it just took a lot longer to rise to that, that top, but it wasn't, I didn't, I didn't growing up, I didn't ever like never let I never thought about having XXY or Kleinfelder syndrome. That never once came into my mind. Like once I was told, I was like, okay, cool. This is me. This is my life. Like Chelsea said, like, it's just, it's part of our, part of Noah's life. Like he doesn't treat it any differently. So does that kind of answer your question? All right. Question number two, there's lots of misinformation about Kleinfelder syndrome in the medical field. Is there anything that you learned about yourself that you shared with your parents that they didn't know about you? Was there anything that you debunked since they didn't have the information? Yeah. So, so when I was born in 1985, my mom was, a, my parents were lawyers and my mom had access to the medical libraries 
and there was no information. There was no internet, none of that stuff. And um, there was one article from Denmark that had a little bit of information that she had access to. And these were like all papers that they had to like go through and read through and all this, like nobody would ever, kind of like a library, but way bigger. Um, and I think in that article, it just said, talk to your kids. It said, be, be as, like make them talk, talk, like be as communicative as possible. And that was it, that's all my parents had. So I think that they, my mom, a uh, testament to my parents of raising me the way they did. My, my parents were very successful in law. And my mom was one of the top, um, like, top lawyers in her field and also in the men's field of being a woman at that time. And she gave up everything, her whole entire career to take care of me, to help me push me and, and do whatever it needed to give me the best life I possibly could have. And that is like huge. And I, I give everything to my parents. So they adapted to me. They, they, they put me in lots of learning. I did like um, hooked on phonics when I was a kid, when it was being made fun of. Um, I did Sylvan Learning Center. I did fast forward. I did all these create all these programs at the time, and they they like listened to therapists and other people that were teaching me about how I learned. And then they adapted their lifestyle and they they adapted to teach me um, everything about how I learned instead of like how they learned. So we did lots of um, flashcards. My dad would, there's a YouTube video of me doing it with my dad. He would write a word with the like synonyms or like the, he would spread the word out and he would write the word, the sections in different colors and I'm visual. So instead of, that's how I learned how to spell uh, bigger words and, and understand. So I could memorize the word visually, picture it in my mind. And then he would ask me like, to say it back to him and I could do it. And then what I could also do is I could spell the word backwards. And so they kind of adapted their, their parenting style to ed, like to helping me. And now they're the most supportive, they've been the most supportive people ever since I started all of this, um, knowing that I'm taking a financial burden in a sense um, on myself to do this. They're completely supportive um, and I go to them and I'm a talker. So I go to them every, I, I live about 15 minutes away from them. And I, I, I explode with information and they, they listen. There's only so much that they can take because they're a little bit older, but, um, they're a hundred percent supportive of everything. And they're amazed on the massive community that we've created in a short period of time. All right. Question number three was for Chelsea. How would you want the medical community to change how they help parents and people with Klinefelter syndrome? This is a question that I've given a lot of thought on. So thank you for asking that. Um, and I want to backpedal a little bit because when I say I had a great experience, like it was still traumatic. It was still very traumatic um, to find out that I was pregnant with a child who was going to have something like wrong with them. And I use that in quotes because like, cannot stress enough that I don't feel that Noah has anything wrong with him. Um, and all I knew about Kleinfelter syndrome was from taking a genetics course in my undergrad, probably seven years beforehand. And it was not complimentary. Um, you know, and I found out by my OB calling me and telling me at like six o'clock at night, and it was a very brief conversation. And then I had no information for two weeks because once again, living in rural Maine, that's how long it took for us to get to a genetics counselor. And we had to drive two hours to meet with one. Um, 
But that being said, once again, it was a much better experience than most women have. So what I and what Ryan, I think, also agrees with is we're working really hard to start connecting with healthcare providers so that we can offer them opportunities to grow how they deliver this information to patients. Um, often, I've been working with a lot of moms. Um, we're working on a project right now, talking with mothers about how they've received this news, uh, or were given this news, rather. Um, and a huge thing that we have discovered is that providers don't know anything about it, or what they do know is really outdated information. So they're focusing on those negatives once again, rather than the many, many positives that can come from having this syndrome. Um, and also that, you know, your child can have very minimal impacts from it. Noah is very minimally impacted. Um, and I think part of that's because we've known since he was, you know, when I was 20 weeks pregnant with him, so we were prepared. Um, but I really would like per to see providers of in all walks, whatever they're working on, um, be kind, be compassionate, take the time to meet with their patients in person and talk to them. Um, a lot of times over the phone, I think that that's really impersonal. And this is something that has such a significant impact on many lives, not just the mother, not just the father, but also the child. And goes back to that acceptance of how people hear that news is how they're going to feel about the pregnancy, how they're going to feel about their unborn son, and how they're going to feel about their son when he is born. Um, you know, and I think that ongoing education is critical. A lot of what these doctors are working with is information that is 30, 40, 50 years old and is very outdated. Um, you know, and I, we've also had parents just hear the most wildly inaccurate things. Like one mother was told that she was 50% more likely to have a child with another chromosomal variance if they had another pregnancy, which is completely untrue because Kleinfelter syndrome is a totally spontaneous thing. Um, we've had mothers, once again, we've had people um, be told by the providers that their child is going to be a monster using those exact phrases. Um, others who have been hounded by their providers to terminate their pregnancy right up until um, the last time when they could no longer terminate the pregnancy after they had clearly told them, no, I don't want to do that. Um, so yeah, sorry, I, I kind of went on a tangent here, but this is something we're really passionate about is helping providers understand that this is not a death sentence of a diagnosis by any means. Um, and they really need to focus on empowering their patients to fully understand so that they can make the best choice for them, the most informed choice with the most accurate, up-to-date information. And I think also that for an OB who maybe doesn't have as much experience, pairing this conversation with a genetics counselor or with um, a geneticist is really, really important. And then mothers should immediately be referred to a geneticist or to a genetics counselor so that they can follow up and have those conversations within the next day or two, because waiting two weeks is like, was absolutely, you know, agonizing. Um, we were, did that answer your question? We were, one, one more thing to add to that. So we were contacted by Oxford University and which is in the UK. And when we, it was about a year ago, and they asked us to, um, they wanted to use a photo on our website of this guy, this kid named Luke. And um, they, it was the first time in their book, and in, I, I think, I'm pretty sure all textbooks, that a person of a real person, without their shirt off, without a black strip through their eyes, of just someone living with Kleinfelder syndrome that was ever used in a, in a publication, in a book, especially in a college textbook. And so we went back and forth with them. They, they were trying to use three outdated studies um, from 1985, 2000, and I think 1979. And they were trying to basically what they, when you read about the blurb about Kleinfelder syndrome, it was basically stating that all men through 
this, these studies will be gay. And it was like, okay, so you want us to give you a photo, but then this boy is 15 or 16 years old. He doesn't even have a voice because you're automatically telling us through these studies that are way outdated that he doesn't have a choice. Like, so that was a huge turning point is we actually got them to listen to us that, hey, we, our community is no likely to be gay or trans or anything else other than the normal population. And that was a huge just win for everyone in our community to not be judged based off of really outdated information. Thank you. And so it's important to have this conversation. And so I'm really happy that both of you actually found time to be here because we have about 40 students in this classroom, including me. Um, so there are going to be professionals that are going to come out of NYU here, right? Like, I don't know that we could ask, but I don't want to waste your guys' time. And we're going to maybe have medical doctors coming out of here. We might have psychologists that could come out of here. We might have so many different professions represented in here in the future. So how great is that we get to be exposed by the real information and the right information, right? So I'm very, very grateful for this opportunity. So thank you again. Just want to mention that, right? Of course. Thank you. you know. Uh, thank you. And I mean, we're happy to answer any more questions that you folks might have or anything like that. I, Noah is happily occupied with Paw Patrol right now. So I have a few <laughs> minutes free. <laughs> Question number four. Is there any therapy for health or for mental health for kids or adults with Klinefelter syndrome? I think when it comes, you're asking about like, if there are there therapies or anything like that to help? Um, I think awareness. So majority of men that have their Klinefelter syndrome know nothing about their own syndrome. So educate, like before I started doing all this advocacy work, this nonprofit, I, I trusted all of my doctors with all of my medical, my hormones, everything. I, I just lived my life. And I think that's majority of our community. They don't really understand their own syndrome and how it impacts them and how we we're more susceptible to like metabolic syndrome, high cholesterol, uh, heart disease, like, um, stroke, heart attack. And then when we're on testosterone, it might increase your blood, um, your, your hemoglobin levels, which I'm actually experiencing now, I have to give blood. So um, when it comes to therapy, it's more of most men probably don't think that they need therapy and accepting themselves and being like, there are these other methods. Because when everyone hears therapy, they, everyone turns the other way. Like, oh, I don't need that. Why would I need that? Why do I, why do I need to talk to someone? But when, what we're doing now is we have a, a couple of advocates, my friend Gareth, who lives in Ireland, who found out later on in life trying to have kids. He's now on our YouTube channel making videos. And he talks about how therapy really helped him. So what we're trying to do is get our community to open up and be in these, in these uh, social highlights of, of on putting their face out there. And then I think more men will then um, see that other men are getting success from therapy or other aspects of mental health, and they might accept themselves and be like, yeah, I should try that. You know, um, I struggle with that my, myself of, of, do I, you know, because I talk to so many people who want help, and then I also need my own help as an empath. So I, I struggle with that, but um, I don't think there's, Chelsea, there's no, other than when kids are diagnosed, 
in utero, there's like physical therapy, occupational therapy, um, speech therapy, and there's some of these things that some kids do and some kids don't based on the spectrum. But that's what we're trying to figure out is, are there specific things that can help? Some people also say cognitive behavioral therapy for um, in autism, it's uh, ABA. Some families have um, kids with autism as well as Klinefelter syndrome, and they said that uh, those have been really successful. Really good answer. Um, thank you. Uh, I have a question, like if you don't mind me asking, how, how much did you struggle with um, your own masculinity? And what I mean by that is proving that you are, like in terms of other people's perceptions and, and proving maybe to yourself that you're like everyone else in a sense. Like, how did you go with, through that within yourself? Was that a struggle? I'm sure it has been to some degree. Like, how did you go about that? See, if you're diagnosed with something that, that it gets stigmatized and maybe you have an additional, like, X chromosomes, you might not be potentially a man enough. Like, how did you, like, process that for yourself? And how difficult it was? And what did you do? I don't, I, I don't think, I could give a couple examples, but I don't think I ever struggled with masculinity or anything like that. I always knew that I was a boy, a man. I never, I never had identity, identity issues or, or any, any of that. Um, I've always dated women. I'm, I'm, so I'm heterosexual. Um, I've never had any of, of, of those identity, but when it comes to one of the things that I could, I could say is one of the, when I, when growing up, when, when starting testosterone at 13 or 12, um, I started at 13 that going to the doctor and having the doctor check your testicles because all majority of us, I can't speak for everyone, but majority of us have small testicles. So I, I like, I did a TikTok a while ago um, for all the young kids and, and uh, I did, it was, it's, it's, um, it's like pistachios. They're the finest nuts of them all. Like the, uh, they're tiny, but, but that's just how I've, I've, I've known about that my whole life. And I know it's, it's a psychology class, so it's okay. You know, a lot of people, a lot of men aren't, aren't um, haven't accepted themselves having small testicles, but it's one of those things. It's like, I can't do anything about it. I don't want to do anything about it. Like I've had nothing but positive reviews from dating my entire life um, about that. And so I've, I've kind of taken it as I, I, that that's, that hasn't been an issue in my life. Um, I'd say the only challenge that I had was just like, I knew I was different growing up in the locker room was always kind of weird. Like locker rooms for me have just been always like this uncomfortable situation or going to like a, um, and I don't know if that's because I have X, Y, or just, I, you know, just in general, um, that, that, that situation has been like, you notice, I think you notice other guys and you notice that they have like a lot larger testicles, but I never was there. They're like, Oh wait, is there anything like, <laughs> But I also found out early. So if we were to ask that question to a guy that was diagnosed later on in life, they might have uh, more of, a, of an answer to, to kind of that question. Add on to the topic about masculinity as well. Um, one thing that we've noticed, and Ryan and I have talked about this quite a bit, is that oftentimes when we're working with families, we find that it's the moms who are driving the research and they're driving the appointments and the dads tend to take almost a backseat to it. 
Um, and we've really talked a lot about like why that is and what what is it that causes the dads to kind of step back oftentimes even from their son's own raising. And we've met with fathers um, and done video or interviews with them and the fathers can't even like look us in the eye. And it's clear that they're really experiencing some type of shame or embarrassment around um, this their son's diagnosis. And a lot of times topics of um, traditionally masculine themes come up. So like that they can't have children, that they can't carry on their family, their family name, that they are not going to play sports. Um, you know, and all these things we know are not true, but that's a lot of what we're finding that we're trying to figure out is how do we help people understand these areas of masculinity and then also redefine those areas of masculinity for them so that they can be the best support to their sons and love their sons no matter what. So for example, my husband grew up playing sports. I mean, he was, you know, a three season sports player, went to camps, got a scholarship, all of that. Um, I did a season of swim and bailed on it because I hated it. Um, so, you know, sports are not important to me, but they're important to him. And never once has my husband been like, oh, well, Noah better play soccer. Noah better do this. We just believe that we will support Noah in whatever he ends up deciding is interesting or whatever passion he wants to pursue. That to us does not mean masculinity. Um, but we're realizing to other people, sports does equate masculinity or having children does equate masculinity. Um, so there is some struggle there in the community still on the paternal side. Um, I can't speak about men with Kleinfelter syndrome because I am not a man with Kleinfelter syndrome, um, but that's the area I work with. So I hope, I hope that made sense. <laughs> now that, now that like, I, I think about your question and now that I, I talk to a lot of men that get, get diagnosed right away. Um, I, I talk to a lot of people in general, but um, they, a lot, some, a lot of men have this feeling once they get diagnosed and, and, and diagnosis and syndrome, those words in general are negative or are not like the greatest words. So they, a lot of them experience, um, like not being able to get their wife pregnant. So, and they don't have sperm. So they experience this, like, I, they, they just get this rush of like, I'm, I'm not a man. I can't provide for my wife. I can't do this. I can't do that. Like all these masculine things that a man could provide for their wife they all of a sudden feel um a lot of them go into depression some have come to me with thinking about suicide um and it's it's just all across the board it, i think it depends upon your upbringing your how you were raised um how your your confidence your your insecurities like a lot of those things also affect um how the diagnosis um affects the person and also how they were told by their provider and in the manner that they were, they found out. So question number five, how impactful do you feel Kleinfelter syndrome has been in forming relationships such as platonic, professional, and romantic? That's a good, that's a good question. So at, I'll speak on my behalf for me, but then also kind of a little bit about the community. Since it's a spectrum, there are, I do talk to a lot of guys that do struggle with um, like group situations. They're better at one-on-one -on -one, uh, um, where a lot of us are very, um, it takes us a lot. So, so if you, I can't, so right here, that's where the camera is. If you've been noticing, I look down a lot. It's very hard for me to look people in the eyes, especially in an interview. I'm photographic. So my brain is everything that I see is like pictures and colors and, and all like visual. So when it comes to articulating 
it takes, and I've learned through time that I, I was not like this or this articulate as a child, but it's, um, it takes time to translate the visual into verbal and then have it actually come out the way that you thought about it. And I, I attribute it to like foot and mouth syndrome or, or however that goes. Sometimes you say something and you're like, oops, I shouldn't have said that, but, um, or I said it in the wrong context that I thought about it. So it takes us a lot, a little bit longer to maybe communicate our thoughts. So when people are in a group and there's constant conversation, a lot of us are observers. So we sit back, we watch, observe, and we, we pay attention. Like for me, I pay attention to body language more than anything. And I can tell by body language how someone feels, how they interact. Like a lot of the men and babies in our community are empathic. So they really pay attention to those feelings and, and the visual aspect. So the communication is a lot harder, um, but we're really good. A lot of us are really good on those one-on-one -on -one instances and we're very detailed. So if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm in a big group and I'm called upon to like tell my side of the story or, or like I have a joke or something, I have to like be like, oh, and her shoes her shoes had like multi-multicolor laces and she was wearing this and this was the weather and and like I describe everything that I see and because to me that is like that is what's important in my mind and everyone else is like deer in headlights and they're like so what's the point like what's the point of your story and so when it can't when it comes to communication I'd say through practice I think a lot like for me through practice and just constantly putting myself in those awkward social situations I know I'm awkward but I like have to push myself to to be in that situation and then like in an interview I haven't had an interview in a really long time um but I would kind of just put myself out there so it's like I'm really good at the, I'm really good at learning this way this is how I can do it really efficiently probably faster than everyone else that's doing it this way but I really struggle in these aspects and some employers might you know, treat that as like, oh, we, we're not going to hire you because you, I, and I never treat it as a disability. Um, but as far as it's a pretty general question, but um, I'd say communication is, has that definitely been difficult throughout life, especially just with language in general, but um, through practice and never, never giving up and, and not letting the introverted side take over and, and isolate yourself at home and not pushing yourself to be in those social situations because you can't learn if you're constantly in your house, locked in your room, playing video games by yourself. A little bit about that with Noah. Um, so, you know, due to COVID, we haven't really gone anywhere in the last couple of years. Um, but when we do, Noah share, I was kind of like laughing when Ryan was talking a little bit because Noah shares so many of those same qualities that Ryan has. Um, He's extremely empathic. He's really intuitive. And there's just something about him that people are really drawn to. So we'll be in stores and people just like come up to him and they're interacting with him and talking to him and commenting on him. And, um, and he really loves that. And he loves like really intensely like studying people and getting to know people. Um, so in our family, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's impacted our relationship so much. Um, the relationships with the family members that have had negative responses to it are strained to be perfectly honest, but they're strained partly because of other things, not just due to that. That was kind of like the icing on a very crummy cake in regards to dealing with those people. Um, and 
now that I feel like really strong about it and that I feel like I have a really strong knowledge and understanding, I'm not afraid to talk to people about it and I'm not afraid to correct people. So, you know, like I've had the people that like, I'll tell them and they like run to Google and I'll be like, please do not repeat the things to me that you've looked at on Google. Please let me tell you about Noah. Please let me explain my son to you because I know him best. And I have, you know, out of all the people in the world, I've read a lot about this, this syndrome. I understand it really, really well. So please let me educate you and don't play Dr. Google with me. Um, and so for the most part, like, you know, sometimes they're a little like, oh, okay, well, I, I had my Google and I, I know. And I'm like, but you don't. And then once I explain to them, they're pretty understanding. And it's, I mean, we haven't lost any relationships that weren't already like kind of going downhill because of this. And we haven't, um, you know, we haven't severed any ties or anything like that. And once people know about Kleinfelter syndrome, they're usually just like, oh, okay, that's fine. And that's really about the end of it. Um, you know, so a lot of our work is destigmatizing this and also demystifying it too. And um, breaking it down in a way that people can understand. So I had a friend a couple months ago message me really out of the blue. And she was like, I've seen a lot of your posts about Kleinfelter syndrome and I feel like I don't understand. Can you explain it to me? Like, she's like, can you break it down so that I can understand it? And I did. And we had a really great talk about it. And then she was like, thank you. I feel so much better now. And I feel like I can ask questions and I'm going to get an answer. So, you know, also on our part, being really open, being understanding of people when they don't understand, or they're trying to educate themselves and knowing that for the most part, it does come from a place of like, I just want to be there for you. I want to support you, but I don't know how. So did that answer your question? This fifth question was asked to Chelsea. How did you frame the conversation with your son about his diagnosis so that it wasn't intimidating or confusing? Did you try to explain what chromosomes are? How did you do it? One thing that like in our family, um, I have adult ADHD. I've been living with it my entire life. I wasn't diagnosed until my mid twenties, um, you know, but I have a non-neurotypical brain. And my poor husband is the neurotypical person in our family. So he's the one that's like always try to like hold everything together while Noah and I are like spinning around. Um, and so we just sort of like accept people for who they are and how they think in our family and like our processes. So for Noah, we just would say like, you know, you go play with Miss Andy, who's his physical therapist and you go play with Miss Laura, who is his occupational therapist. And we just make that part of his daily experience in his daily life. Um, and then when I started working for Ryan, I was um, transcribing interviews of men who had Kleinfelter syndrome, um, which was really a huge part of my transformation of kind of like coming out of the closet about this and sharing it with other people because like all these men, you know, they're like beautiful and smart and strong and they have wonderful careers. And even the ones that had rocky upbringings have really overcome that. And they're excited to share their lives with people. And so Noah would come up as, you know, toddlers do. And I would say, oh, this is Jeff. He's a chef and he lives in Australia and he has Kleinfelter syndrome like you do. And he would say, okay. And then, you know, he'd run off to do his thing. Um, you know, and when I like FaceTime with Ryan to talk, Noah often is in and out. And I'll explain to Noah, like, this is Ryan. He also has Kleinfelter syndrome like you do. So he can see that there are these people who have this, who are living their normal lives, who are doing their normal things, who are a part of society, um, and they're perfectly fine, and he is going to be perfectly fine, and um, so it's just something that's just part of our daily life, and part of our, like, the language of our family, and our family culture, and um, it's not going to change, we're just going to continue, and as he goes, you know, gets older and can understand more, we will explain more to him, um, but yeah, like, I'm not, 
I mean, gosh, it's hard to explain chromosomes to like regular, you know, adults. And um, <laughs> I don't even like, right? Honest, yeah, to be honest, the scientific side of a lot of this stuff, I haven't even had the, I have the desire, but I don't even have like, there's so much other stuff. And you ever, you ever, it's a really good question because that question is probably one of the number one questions we get from like newly diagnosed mothers that mm -hmm. even their child isn't even here yet. And they're, they're constantly like, well, how are we going to like, what do you, how do you tell your child? What do you say? What do you do? And I think it's, it's not, it's like, I kind of describe it in the analogy because I speak in a lot of analogies um, is it's like the birds and the bees when no one wants to have that conversation with their parents. So don't make it that conversation. It's something that if we, instead of dropping the bomb all at once on your 11 or 12 year old, because so with our community, since we don't, since our bodies don't make testosterone, um, it at, at around 10 to 13, they start going to the doctor more, getting blood work to check for testosterone levels. And then they might need supplemental testosterone at, at, for puberty. And so a lot of families will tell their, their kids like right then and there before they start getting all these tests. And, and one of the things is like, I think that if we can educate these, these kids earlier, because we know we're different, like we know we kind of, I, I, I knew that I was different from my peers growing up, but I just didn't know exactly why. Um, I kind of tell people like, I view the world from a drone perspective. I, I, I see it all versus like living it from eye to eye. Um, and so I think that's a big fear question for our community is like how, and we're actually working really hard to try to produce some resources in the next like six months to a year to help with those conversations um, of normalizing, telling their kids about like, Hey, this is, this is what you have. And, and, but not letting them, not allowing them to use it as a victim. Cause that's also a very fine line is, is how do they tell them? And then if they constantly blame everything, all their problems as a young kid on these issues that can create other psychological stuff. So thanks. Uh, for and that. also not shocking them with this yeah. information, right? Because you're like going back to the, like Ryan knew all along that something was wrong. Like growing up, I knew something was wrong with the way I thought because I like didn't fit in and I thought differently and I struggled in school, like all these things. And then finally at like 24, I got this diagnosis and I was like, God, wouldn't that have been nice to know when I was in elementary school and like failing classes because I couldn't pay attention and you know, all this stuff. Um, so we want, we want kids to know that this is just a part of who they are. It is not the sum total of who they are. It's a component of the things that make them them. And that's how we're focusing on that with Noah. It's just like, a part of his life that will always be there, will always need maintenance, will always need care. And that's not a bad thing. Like we all have things about us that need maintenance and care. That's why we have healthcare. That's why we have mental health care, all these things. So, you know, we want parents to like be proud of that and to like cue their kids in early. So they're not shocked at 13, 14, 15 with this like component of their life that they didn't know existed. And that you have a friend that has some of the symptoms of, mm -hmm. of possible Klein-Pilter syndrome and how to like, I if you're if your your friends so um communication is really important on on um maybe we have a youtube channel i've got some great youtube videos of me traveling and doing other things and just talking about it uh we we have instagram so maybe it's something that you can just uh when you're flowing through social media or something um you can cut be like you could talk about this class about learning about it and you could um present to that to him in a non uh like striking idea i like yeah, not putting him in a box and and not wanting him to like push back against you and 
because as, as soon as he'll google it there's that denial of like no that's not me but it could be but he doesn't but people don't want to like they don't want to accept it and you don't want to be confronted right and you might not want to hear it and so like presenting it as you're saying i think this is a really good answer like hey we had a class today this is what happened like isn't that interesting and see how it goes and see what comes out of that add to that a lot of the symptoms of Klinefelter syndrome are similar to others. Um, you know, there are some that are really like the hallmark symptoms, like the gynecomastia and the, the height and the extended limbs. But like Ryan said, not the majority of people with Klinefelter syndrome don't have those. Um, so there are other syndromes that can kind of play in there. So you also don't want to just assume that this is what this person has. But I always think, you know, sharing information can't hurt as long as you do it in like a non-threatening or accusatory type of way. Just be like, hey, saw this post, maybe you might want to read it. Yeah, and, and one of the things it's, so Kleinfelder syndrome happens to between like one in, and 500, one in 650, one in a thousand, depending upon where you, you find those resources. Only 25% of us will find out that we have a diagnosis at some point in our life. 75% will die never knowing that they have this syndrome. And so it's, we're hiding in plain sight, we're out there, there could be people in the classroom or your friends or other people that could have this and you would have no idea. And so when it comes to like moving forward in your careers and being around people and, and seeing us talk about this, it's just one of those things that you might continue to, to, to research it after this class, or you might continue to learn about it and just make sure that you go into it with that open mind of, you know, there's that saying with autism that you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's the same with our community is everyone has their, that spectrum. And, and that's one of the things that's not talked about in the medical and medical community and online is it doesn't say that this, this syndrome is a spectrum and there are people affected in different ways. What a great way to finish it. I, I really like it. And this is the reason why I invited you. And I'm so grateful that both of you had time to join us. Once again, as I, I don't know if, there, if we even need to do it, but we have a few minutes left. There are going to be 40 people that are going to have likes outside of this class and going to go into different professions. Uh, I'm also a professional in this field, right? You guys are aware of it. What's the message? What should we take out of this? Like, what's the most important thing? I think you just mentioned that. I mean, there's something else I'd want to like decide on that. Is there, what should we take? What kind of awareness and knowledge should we take out of this session together today? Not a session, a meeting. Um, Chelsea, you want to like put in like a one minute and I'll follow yeah. up? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the big thing is compassion, kindness, uh, consideration to your care and your practice and treating every single person like an individual and assuming that when you meet them, you know nothing about them and you need to learn about them. Um, don't give them labels, don't tell them who they are or what like is expected, I guess, um, because everyone's so different. Like Ryan said, it is a spectrum. So some people will be so minimally impacted and some people will be more severely impacted. Um, so just really be adaptable and flexible, kind and compassionate. That's my biggest takeaway to you. That's a, that's a, I mean, I think I've said a lot of the things throughout. Uh, it's, I think awareness, um, awareness is key within, and within Kleinfelder syndrome or within any type of uh, very unique syndrome. But if any of you become doctors, listen to your patients. Or if you become psychologists, li really listen to them because and to I, their parents. <laughs> we just got a comment on YouTube before I started this. And it said, you know, who are you to tell doctors you know, what to do, or, or you don't know what you're talking about. And it's, and it's like, I'm been, I've been having a really hard time in healthcare 
knowing what I know and, and finding my doctors that listen to me and, and not try to be like, well, I'm the doctor and you're the patient. Um, and and uh, just um, treating everyone with, with um, respect and, and kindness. And, and I think those are things right now that with social media and all the crazy fast world that we live in, um, empathy is probably one of the most important things that's really lacking in, in society. Hey, so last two things, maybe. I wish we could get involved as a class and help you guys somehow. Maybe in the future, if you and I can talk about it outside of it, we can, as an NYU, we can do something for your organization. So, but how can people find you, both of you? Do you want to share your social media information so that in case people don't know, like, how, how can they get involved, where they can read more, like, where is all of that? I know it, but do you want to share it? Yeah, so um, on Instagram, it's at livingwithxxy. So if you were to Google living with XXY, most likely everything would pop up with what we're doing, but website livingwithxxy.org, uh, TikTok, I think it's like living with X, it's, it's on there, but I, I don't post much on TikTok. Um, we're on Facebook, living with XXY, um, YouTube, same thing, pretty much everything we're doing. You'll, if you see this logo, um, that, that's what we're doing. Um, if you wanna reach out to me personally, it's ryan at livingwithxxy.org. Um, and Chelsea is what, how do you spell it, Chelsea? C-H-E-L-S-E-A at livingwithxxy.org. Um, so if you have like volunteer opportunities or you want like something, gosh, sorry, I need coffee. If you would like to volunteer, please reach out to me directly and I can find you like a different opportunity. We've got a lot of need as most nonprofits do. Um, open for like volunteering experiences or if people were to like reach out and try to help your organization some kind of a way, you open to that? Yep. Yeah, very, very great for the both of you. Yeah. Thank you so much.